Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to Unscrewed, the show that knows that real liberation includes sexual liberation. I am your host, Jacqueline Friedman, and this week we are getting real because shit's getting real out there. I mean, it's already been real. It's been ongoing real, but it seems like it just got realer. All of which is to say that I have with me the amazing Kimberly Innes McGuire, who's the new executive director of urge she's going to tell you what that stands for to talk about what's at stake in this political moment both with the midterms and beyond and the amazing organizing that she and the folks at urge are doing and other folks that she works with as well to make us all feel more inspired to take action and less paralyzed so that's the goal for today do you think you can help us with that kimberly absolutely thank you because i really need it (laughs) We, we all need it, and I'm here for it. Because <laughs> holy shit. Um, okay, so we're going to talk about all of this stuff. But first, as you know, on Unscrewed, we do the lightning round. So what has been making you happy this week? Spending time with my partner's children who remain hopeful, mostly because they don't watch the news every day. Oh. <laughs> How old are they? They are four and eight, but I talk to the eight-year-old about Donald Trump a lot, so that's also real. What's the best sex advice you ever received? Talk about it. Talk about what you like. Talk about what you don't like. Talk about it in the moment because it's hot. Talk about the things you want to improve. Yeah, don't be shy. Don't be shy. Nobody's psychic. Exactly. I mean, maybe someone is, and that's super cool. But even if they were, it's still hot to talk. Thank you. There's this weird mythology that, like, we're supposed to be thinking about and talking about sex at all times, except for with the people we're fucking, which is ridiculous. (laughs) If that were true, phone sex would not be a lucrative industry. What's been making you the maddest or saddest about the sexual culture lately? The refusal of most men to recognize their complicity in the constant sexual violence that women and femmes and queer and trans people in this country experience. Yeah. Do you want to say more about that? You know, it's the good guy myth. We live in a culture where every woman and femme and LGBTQ person has a story about being sexually harassed, being touched, being mistreated at work. And yet there's just legions of good guys, most of whom are unwilling to see the ways in which one, they benefit in terms of privilege from that dynamic and refuse to take a good hard look at their own history. 
When I think about the Me Too movement and we have these high level conversations about these villains and these awful guys where it's, oh, well, that person, there's 19 allegations, there's 15 allegations. And obviously those are terrible people and they need to be held accountable. And it's really easy to focus on, you know, the villain famous rapist of the day and not look into all of our own sexual histories and say, you know, where did I fall short? And I think in particular, what I don't see enough is men in my life taking a good, hard, honest look at their own history and looking at the ways that they're part of this. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. What's the biggest myth about sex that you used to believe, but you don't believe anymore? The myth that good sex can happen without some kind of emotional attachment. Yes. I believe that because I believe that there was a very specific kind of emotional attachment that went with sex and it was a very kind of narrow definition. And I've really come to appreciate all the different ways people can be in sexual relationship with each other while also having the high degree of respect for each other's humanity and dignity. And that doesn't mean that you have to be married or monogamous or straight or any of that mess, but you can love and respect and treat with dignity a one night stand. And I think that's great. And not pretend that we don't all have feelings. Lisa Wade, uh, who's a sociologist who wrote American Hookup, which is a fantastic book, wrote in that book, we're human, we have feelings about breakfast, right? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, it's not about you have to be married or committed. It's about like acknowledge that we all are emotional, sensitive human creatures. And to relish the deliciousness of really seeing someone in all of their complex, beautiful humanity. How could that not make it better? Yeah, absolutely. All right, last up, who is someone who's really brave, who's doing great work to unscrew the sexual culture? I think about young people in Texas, and I think about the roller coaster of sexual and reproductive politics that has happened, and the fact that there are organizers on college campuses who are doing fun, sexy, sex ed loteria, gamifying sexual education, and still finding ways to talk about sex that are fun, educational, sex positive, even as politically the state is sort of on fire all around them. Mm. I have a lot of respect for that, because I think It's one thing to have your fun, sexy, sex positive thing in a state where you don't feel like your rights are constantly under attack. But the people who are doing the response to terrible policies and wanting to support pleasure in that same moment, that's really brave. And I think holding those spaces are even more important when people feel really sort of beaten down. And it's a reminder that we can't wait for liberation to feel pleasure and to believe in pleasure, because then we'd be waiting all our lives. Yay. You know, I needed to hear you say that just now. So thank you. (laughs) And thanks to the young people of Texas you're talking about. I hope we'll wind up talking more about them in detail a little later in the conversation. Absolutely. First, I have to ask you, because I know listeners are going to be wondering, what is URGE? URGE is Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity. Yay! It's a really fun acronym. I love a good acronym. This is an organization that is really explicitly sex positive. We are a national reproductive justice organization. We're the only national reproductive justice organization that is focused on young people. And we are working in some of the toughest states where young people of color, LGBTQ folks are bringing a really radical view of sexuality and reproductive justice to really tough policy and organizing work and just kicking ass left and right. Amazing. And so you just started as their fearless leader. I did just two weeks ago. Oh my God. How's it going? 
in this political moment where living in Washington, D.C., our office is right by the White House. So I have to walk by the White House every day. Oh, my God. Do you, like, um, <laughs> hiss at them and, like, flip them off? Like, I would be like, Ugh. oh. I feel more comfortable flipping off the Trump Hotel because I respect the office of the presidency in theory, but I do often make angry cat noises at the White House if I'm being completely (laughs) honest. But what I've seen in just the two weeks here, you know, I got to go out in the field and spend some time with our staff and it's really easy to feel hopeless and it's easy to feel like we are fighting an uphill battle, but I am so inspired already by the young people that we work with. These are folks in Georgia, in Alabama, in Texas, in Kansas, and they are bringing all of who they are, all of their big, bold personalities, a radical intersectional reproductive justice analysis, and they have hope. They have hope for the future that they're fighting for. And that gives me everything that I need to wake up in the morning and put on my She-Hulk hands and get ready to get out there. It feels like we are at the top of a roller coaster and I feel like the stakes for reproductive justice and bodily sovereignty just keep getting ratcheted higher and higher. In this moment where you're stepping into leadership of a national reproductive justice organization, what's at stake for you? Like, what are the big fights that you want everybody to be aware of, especially the ones that you think aren't getting enough coverage? Absolutely. Just this fall, we will see on the ballot in both Alabama and West Virginia constitutional amendments for those states that would essentially nullify the right to abortion as far as the state constitution is concerned. And is that meant to be in place for when and if Roe gets overturned, or is that meant to become a challenge to Roe and make it to the Supreme Court? Well, I I think there's a couple things it, it could be. So one, there's a very immediate impact in West Virginia, which is historically, and this is true for nearly a dozen states, the West Virginia state constitution has been interpreted as not only protecting access to abortion, but actually protecting abortion coverage. So what that means is that low income folks who live in West Virginia, who get their insurance through Medicaid today, that abortion care is covered as it should be through Medicaid. Most of why Medicaid covers access to abortion in the states that it does is actually because of court orders. You know, we do have states like Illinois, which just recently passed legislatively a policy to do the same thing. But this is how a lot of low income folks are able to get abortion covered. So in West Virginia, the short term effect is it would basically nullify that. And there's some questions in terms of legally, does it happen immediately? Does the legislature have to do something in addition? But it's very clear that whether it's immediately after the vote or following in very short order, that low-income women in West Virginia will no longer have the ability to get their abortions covered through Medicaid. And the impact that has on women and families, we know what it does, right? We know that when Medicaid coverage is denied, it pushes families into poverty. We know that a woman who wants to get an abortion but is denied is more likely to experience intimate partner violence. There's real consequences. So that's happening in West Virginia. Is that going to be like a fait accompli in terms of the popular vote or is there a chance to beat it? Oh, there absolutely is a chance to beat it. And there are incredible folks in West Virginia who are fighting tooth and nail to defeat this. I had the pleasure of spending some time with some advocates from West Virginia Free, an amazing organization doing work across the state. And they are out there. They are door knocking. They are canvassing. They are doing everything to get the word out and let folks know, again, there's a very clear short run impact. And this is all part of the big long term plan, right? It's not a secret plan. It's not a very subtle plan. Alabama does not currently have Medicaid coverage for abortion, but they have 
basically the same ballot initiative happening this fall where if this thing passes, the Alabama Constitution will no longer protect abortion access. And so this is happening in two states this fall. The folks who don't want abortion to be legal, the folks who don't want people to have access to abortion are going to watch this closely because it's two states this year. Who knows how many states next year, especially when you add in the Kavanaugh factor. And so, yeah, just to be clear, that Alabama law won't change anything on the ground in Alabama unless Roe is rolled back. Or am I wrong about that? No, you're right about that. Okay. You're right about that. I'm not so, saying that in a flip way, yeah. but I'm just trying to make yeah. sure I understand. It's actually just removing protections so that in the hopes that Roe is rolled back, it'll instantly be illegal to have an abortion in Alabama. Exactly. So okay. it is it is removing that protection. And what we have seen is this is usually followed by a whole new slew of restrictions, right? Because of course, right now, there's lots of lawyers arguing that many of the abortion restrictions that are in place across the country already violate Roe, right? That they are unconstitutional, but that doesn't stop a state legislature from passing them, right? And oh, certainly- constantly. Yeah. The six-week so, bans exactly. and mm-hmm. all of that horse shit. Yeah. Exactly. This is the first step in Alabama that then we would see, again, in the short run, the impact is likely to be a huge push for a ton of new abortion restrictions. And and again, e- even if those sort of squeak by or they're, they're not able to win a legal challenge against them, et cetera, the day-to-day impact is that fewer people in Alabama, particularly young people, people of color, low-income folks, are not going to be able to actually get an abortion. And at some point, the ability to actually get an abortion becomes far more important than, well, technically it's sort of legal, you know, right. on every other Tuesday. Right. Because what matters is if you need an abortion, can you get an abortion? Not whether it's technically (laughs) legal. I was promised when we talked about this interview, some great hope about red state organizing. So let's start here on this issue. Tell folks what's happening on the ground. I really want people to feel like they can roll up their sleeves and help and not like, holy shit, everything's terrible. I'm going back to bed. Yes, let's not go back to bed. I want to go back to Texas in part because I want to talk a little bit about immigration policy, right? And this toxic rhetoric that we see from this administration every day, which is all about otherizing, which is, I mean, it's not even dog whistles anymore. It's, It's a bullhorn in terms of how immigrants, how Latinx people are talked about, how refugees are talked about the Trump sick fantasy of building a border wall is is sort of emblematic of all of that. And shortly after Trump was elected, we work with organizers across the state of Texas, but in particular, we were doing a lot of work in the Rio Grande Valley along the border and people were upset. People were really frustrated. And in a state like Texas and in, in a region like the Rio Grande Valley, where you're geographically sort of cut off from the rest of the state, it's a really underserved area. There's a lot of really harmful and violent immigration enforcement happening. Talk about, you know, feeling sort of far away and out of touch with places where you might be able to make a change. And yet the response of students in the Rio Grande Valley was, we're going to start local. And what they did was they started having simple conversations with their local elected leaders, and they ended up passing a dozen municipal resolutions that opposed the border wall and that reaffirmed the rights of immigrants in their local communities. I think when I look at that, you know, young people looking around and saying, maybe I can't stop Trump from spouting off on Twitter and from this weird obsession he has with this border wall that's not even like geographically or logistically possible. But what we can do is start conversations in our communities to say, we reject this. We reject the notion that immigrants are not part of our families, part of our communities. We reject the notion of dividing people, dividing families, cutting people off from health care, from being able to see their kids, from being able to get a job and, and build a better life. 
life. And I think to take something that feels so big and scary and awful, like how Trump talks about immigration and the very real policies he's pushing around immigration, and to start local and say, we are going to get really clear in this community that we don't support that. And we are going to prepare for the day if at some point he tries to start laying down bricks, those communities have already clarified their values and have already made it clear that they are not going to support it. You know, I think those value statements are so important and they can sort of seem, I think if you're on the surface level, kind of peric or like empty in the sense that they don't stop Trump from doing anything. But just in terms of the emotional health of a community and the people of a community and sort of the cohesiveness, the ability for us to stay connected and in solidarity with each other and in care with each other, I think are so important. I'm a survivor and I'm very sensitive right now to all the conversation going on about Christine Ford and Kavanaugh and his attempted rape of her. Um, And the way people are responding. And most of the people who are talking about it in public or private don't have the force to do anything about whether Kavanaugh is confirmed or not. Right. Right. Outside of just sort of shaping the cultural conversation, which I do, you know, like senators are people, too, and are influenceable. But like it matters so much when I hear from people. I believe Christine Ford. This is disqualifying, even Mm -hmm. though those people don't have any direct power. Like it makes me feel less crazy. It makes me feel more valued. It makes me feel like I know who I can trust. And that helps me be stronger, right? In a moment where there's an enormous amount of rhetoric that feels very personal to me and my experience. And so I can only imagine what that feels like if you are an immigrant, if you are a refugee, if you are a Latinx person in a Texas border town, not knowing where you stand, that it's really important. And I think that people underestimate the power of just saying those things, even if you feel like you can't affect policy directly. And I think in some ways, Trump is the disgusting, bizarro reverse proof of that. And by that, (laughs) I mean to say, he doesn't even know what policies it would take to enact half of the things that he says. But when he gets out on Twitter and he talks about immigrants or migrants or women or people of color or Colin Kaepernick, he is making those statements because he knows And we have seen that if you spout enough hate and toxicity into the culture, it enables people who agree with you and we're maybe keeping their hate on the down low. It emboldens people who might be otherwise inclined towards violence or towards acting on their hateful impulses, right? Like we see the grotesque fruit that is yielded by the tweets that he is planting out there every day. And What that also shows us is that we can fight back too. We can tell survivors of sexual violence, I believe you, right? I see you. You're not crazy. You're not, um, you know, you're not alone. And and this matters. Yeah, this counts. Because there's so many assholes out there right now saying... Like, uh, if we were start going to start to go after anybody who can have an allegation of sexual assault in high school after him, what will we be left with? And I'm like, holy shit. Like, don't you know that you're admitting you're a rapist? You, you yeah. do. And you literally don't care. Like, you don't think it's important. You don't think it's important. 
important. When we think about silencing people, right, and whether we're talking about an undocumented woman who is trying to make the difficult decision, does she get on the bus to go to the clinic to get the pap smear she needs, or does she stay in her house because she's afraid to go out the door because she's afraid someone might look at her, decide that she doesn't belong, and try to get her thrown out of her home and her community? It can be tough to change what ICE is doing in your community, but I think we can tell people, you are welcome here. You belong here. You are part of this community. We are not going to let anybody peel you off or throw you out or treat you like you're not a human being. And I think that you're right. That is like literally the most powerful antidote to Trumpism. Because Trumpism absolutely is about generating the opposite of that, which is division and fear and hate. And so... Anything that any of us can do that builds community and connection and love and acceptance. I feel so squishy and I'm usually a very practical gal, but like, (laughs) I think that it is actually the most powerful thing that we can be doing and that any brass tacks organizing in terms of the ballot box or policy or, you know, lobbying has to stem from that place. Like that's actually the fundamental place. 
in how we talk, when we join together in literally like, I will watch your kids while you get your pap smear so that you can take care of your health. And when we fight for our rights, whether that's running for office, whether that's voting, whether that's I'll drive the van and get everybody else to the polls. This is a continuum. And it starts with, I absolutely believe these one-on-one just human expressions of common cause and common humanity. Amen. Since 2016, there was sort of this national awakening to like, maybe we should look at different groups of voters or like in 2010, overwhelmingly, these state legislatures that flipped to anti-woman, anti-immigrant, conservative. Oh, let's start paying attention to those because boy, did we get ourselves in a pickle. I think it's great that there's so much new energy, like sort of since Trump, people across country who want to get involved and like, yes, yes, bring everybody to the party. And I know how grateful I am for organizations like Urge that have been working in communities for years. This is not, we come in for a couple of weeks before the election, we do some things. I mean, this is deep organizing, relationship building, getting to know students and campuses and communities. And again, I think it's wonderful that there's so much new energy. And one thing I think about a lot too is for folks who are looking for different levels of engagement, I would encourage people to look at those local groups. We all know sort of like big national name brand organizations. They're all doing great work, of course. Look for that organization that has been hosting community meetings for 15 years, right? And that knows the names of the kids of the people who come to those community meetings. That kind of deep relationship-centered organizing, I mean, that is how we're going to win, especially in states where we are up against it. How do you recommend people find those community orgs if they don't know where to start looking? look what is like near you and around you. So for example, you can go to um, uh, the National Network of Abortion Funds has a, a whole page where they list all of the local funds. You can go to Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity, go to urge.org. And if you are located in one of the states where we're organizing, you can get involved, you can reach out to us. We host events, we host trainings. I think it takes maybe a little bit more work, frankly, like to sort of get beyond like the top, top list. But I think you can also look for organizations that are focused on communities of color, that are focused on, you know, marginalized communities. Starting with an organization that is already centered those most impacted is a great place to start because one, they're doing the toughest work. And the reality is they probably need your help more than anybody else. I mean, an organization like the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum, the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Health, both of which have chapters across the country. These are organizations that every day are centering the people who are most harmed when there's a new abortion ban or when there's an ICE crackdown and people are afraid to leave their homes or when there's, as you're talking about, an attack on trans rights. It might take a little bit of work, but also talk to the people in your life. Chances are you know someone who's volunteering at a really rad local group. And just because you haven't heard of them yet doesn't mean that they won't change your life. Yeah, absolutely. And I will put in a plug for state and local politics right now. I have to say, like, one of the things I've changed since 2016 is stopping focusing exclusively on what's happening nationally, because a lot of the things that impact our lives and the lives of the people in our communities happen on a state and local level. And it is easier to make an impact just literally because of the level of scale. It is easier to feel like you have a role to play and therefore it just feels more satisfying and less like you're screaming into the wind. Absolutely. This is classic for a reason, but school boards have a huge impact. If you care about sex ed, if you care about the rights of young parents and LGBTQ students, and including their school boards that have um, student members as well. So if you are yourself a high school student, there are opportunities there too. 
I have been so excited by the wave of young people and LGBTQ people and people of color running for office and starting locally and recognizing how many races are uncontested, um, how many local positions really do affect our day-to-day lives. A great example of that is something like voting rights. When we think about like what is at stake in the midterms, our ability to vote in future elections, because we have seen these attacks on voting rights. We have seen, I mean, not just states that are unwilling to do the obvious things to expand access to voting, things like same day registration, you know, expanding absentee voting, right? All of these things that we know make it easier for working folks, for low income folks, for folks with disabilities to vote. But unfortunately, there are a lot of state legislatures that very much don't want people to vote. And they're doing awful things to stop it from happening. And the press is not really covering it right. I was listening to, I listened to a variety of of sort of politics shows and coverage because I like to understand what the conversation sounds like. And I was listening to like, I think it was the NPR politics podcast. And they were like talking about what's at stake in the midterms. And they literally just said, well, if Republicans keep the House, it'll be a repudiation of everything the Democrats stand for. And I was like yelling at my phone. I was like, no, it'll be voter suppression and gerrymandering. This is really well known and documented. The Republicans could keep the House and Democrats could have a vast majority of the votes for the House. I don't feel like it's in the discourse enough that we don't, like our democracy isn't fucking working and that's on purpose. Exactly, exactly. And I think It's a hard issue for people to talk about because I think it it is one where, unfortunately, the Supreme Court hasn't helped us in really rolling back voting rights. And we have never not had a voter suppression problem in this country. I mean, that's that's the starting point, right? This idea that once upon a time there was voter suppression and then we fix it, that didn't happen. And I think it's become more insidious. There's no question that voter suppression today um, is often targeted at and has the most impact on people of color, on Black folks, on people with disabilities. The bill's not going to be framed that way. They find these insidious ways to just make voting inaccessible. But it is a huge problem. And unfortunately, part of what's so scary about it for me is that it can degrade people's faith in our democracy. And at a time when we need as much of that faith as possible to save it and to bring ourselves back to a place where people are able to vote, people are able to exercise their basic human rights. So it's it's a huge issue. We need to be talking about it. And part of that is we need to be educating ourselves and our peers on even the day-to-day voter suppression that happens. That's another great way people can get involved. People can get involved as poll watchers. At the very least, you can help make sure that your local polling place is operating in a way that is fair yeah. and equitable and according to the law. And again, it maybe that ain't real sexy, but it's hugely important. I mean, let's talk about that for a second. The thing I think I want people to know the most is getting involved and making a difference in your community is mostly not sexy. Yes. (laughs) My work for the Yes on Three campaign to protect trans rights in Massachusetts has been like getting up earlier than I want to, going out on a sweaty day and talking to strangers, Mm -hmm. none of which are things I like. It's pretty boring and I'm really glad when it's done for my shift. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. It doesn't feel heroic. You'd probably rather be like binging Netflix or having brunch or something more pleasurable. <laughs> like it's, you know, it can be really satisfying in the big picture. There are moments where it's really great, but the vast majority of it is kind of grunt work. And then like you go back and you have to data enter all the postcards you got people to sign. <laughs> None of it is terribly sexy. And I think that people 
feel like they want to do something that feels heroic. And the truth is organizing most of the time does not. The heroism is in the little everyday acts that add up to the revolution, right? The revolution is not the one sexy day where you got the right chance. And I mean, it's, it's not like that, right? It is, it is the data entry, it's the phone calls, it's the canvassing. But what I will also say about that is doing that work, yeah, you'll get some doors closed in your face if you go door knocking. If you do um, phone banking, you'll get some folks that hang up on you. But there are also incredibly transformative moments. I was just talking with one of my colleagues who's doing incredible work organizing in Texas. And she was telling me about a conversation that she had with a student. She was on her campus. She was talking to students about abortion. And the student sort of comes up and is like, well, you know, I don't know how I feel about abortion. And she had some concerns. And just starting from a very human place, they had a conversation. And this organizer was able to debunk some myths, to offer some different perspectives. And ultimately, what this person who came in saying, like, well, I don't think I support abortion, says, well, you know, I, I mean, I guess it's not right for me, but I would never make that decision for someone else. Uh, win, win. That's such a win. Yeah. And the organizer said, congratulations, you're pro-choice. Look, for some people, abortion is a simple issue. For some people, it's a complicated issue. I believe there's room for all of that in our movement to ensure that no one has this decision made for them. And for this organizer who had 30 conversations that day, and probably most of them were mundane, some of them were nice, but one conversation where a person goes from thinking, I don't support this to, oh, actually, wow, you know what I do? Yeah. And come to hear it later, the organizer saw that person and they were out with their family and they kind of like reconnected again. And the woman who had been kind of transformed by this conversation says, oh yeah, like this is my family and I've been talking to them about abortion. Amazing. Or it's even for me uh, with on the Yes on 3 campaign, and I, I don't mean to be go, keep going back to me, but I don't run a bunch of organizers like you do. Yeah. But the, most of the conversations that have been satisfying to me are people who literally just don't even know it's on the ballot. Right. And just making people aware. And a lot of them are really grateful, but it doesn't feel, I think it's less that people want to feel heroes. I'm sort of like walking back what I said. Oh, I think there's some of that, but like people want that moment that you just described where they're like, I made a difference, right? <laughs> and those moments do come along, right? Like they really right. do, but a lot of it does not involve those moments. And it feels, I think a lot of us just feel really small right now and we want to feel more powerful. And so doing things that feel mundane doesn't feel like enough. But I sincerely believe that what we need is all of us doing a bunch of mundane shit that Absolutely. is occasionally transcendent. <laughs> we can all benefit by tipping the balance from how much time we spend mired in the horrifying day-to-day -day cruel rhetoric and bad policies. Like how much time we spend consuming that and sort of letting that negative energy come in and make us seize up with fear. Like less time on that and more time out there doing the work. And it's hard because we all have this desire to be really informed, but I think there's a, a whole lot to be said for, yeah, you want to keep tabs on things you're keeping tabs on, but spend more time out there trying to change things for the good than just consuming news Ugh. about terrible things that are happening. You know, as somebody who consumes too much news, I have to say <laughs> there's a point of diminishing returns. There really is. There is. And it's true that whenever I go out and do something, whether it's writing an op-ed or doing a shift for Yes on 3 or showing up for something for Sister District, I feel calmer. I feel less paralyzed afterwards and I enjoy my own rest and relaxation more because I feel like I did something and not like I should do something and I feel stuck and spinny. So are we going to win in November? 
And I know that there's a million yes or no questions to that. And like, we're going to lose some of the fights and win some of them. But do you think that there is a blue wave or do you think women, angry women are rising up? Do you feel like the wind is behind us or do you not want to make that prediction? I want us to focus on the winning so much that we don't have time to predict how it's going to end. Yeah, that's fair. We know, for example, that there can be an effect of we're going to win. I don't have to vote. Right. Or we're going to win. I don't have to speak out on this issue. And the reality is all the different ways that we can define winning, there's a lot of opportunity, right? There's a lot of opportunity to defeat bad policies. There's a lot of opportunity to vote our values and to elect candidates that are going to protect our human rights, that are going to ensure that our communities are able to live and love and have our day-to-day lives without just being under the grinding oppression that Trump and his cronies want for us all, right? There's so many opportunities to win, but It's going to take all of us and is going to take our weekends and our evenings. And it's going to take tough conversations with family members. It takes every single bit of it. I hope that people have learned, particularly, you know, in the wake of, I don't know, 2016, that the sort of the focus on the outcome can be very distracting when one, if we do the work, right, and we have the conversations and we're out there in our communities, whether so, you know, whether we win or lose in terms of some of these ballot initiatives, whether we win or lose on a specific policy, we will have built power in our communities. And that's how you win today, tomorrow, 10 years from now. Yeah. All right. My last question is, shit is really hard right now. <laughs> what are you doing to take care of yourself Does it back up on you ever? Like, how are you doing and how are you dealing? Just because it's a question that's on my mind a lot. Three things. Number one, time in nature. Um, Before I took on this job, I spent a week hiking the Appalachian Trail and I didn't have my phone on. I was in the woods. I was hanging with baby deer. I was feeling the heartbeat of Mother Earth, like all of the good things. And I came back ready to fight. So for me, that connection with nature, that connection with other life is really important. The second thing is loving on my people. So spending time with my sister, spending time with my family, spending time with my partner, with kids, with people that I can hug and love and share food with. I think all of those really sort of basic human ways of feeling connected. And then the third thing, mental health care is so real. I think every single person can benefit from therapy, whether you've experienced trauma or not. I think most of us have experienced some kind of trauma. I know for me as a survivor of sexual violence, therapy has been really important in my life. And I think there is still so much stigma around it. So, you know, whenever people talk about care and it's like, take a hot bath, I'm like, yes, take a hot bath. But like, also, are you in therapy? Because like, I think it's a great option that, you know, if your health insurance covers it, and then it should, I don't want to underplay the very real need for mental health care in a time when it is anxiety and depression causing to be told you don't matter. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. Kimberly Inez McGuire, thank you for your leadership and for coming on my show. Jacqueline Friedman, thanks for being such a badass. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's one of my pleasures in life (laughs) is when I get to be a badass. Where can people follow you on social media and your work and urge and all that stuff about staying in touch? go to urge.org. You can find all of our social media there. I am Kimberly Inez MCG on the Twitter and the Instagram and Kimberly Inez McGuire on Facebook. 
come find me, come find Urge. Let's talk about sex and abortion and justice and let's stay connected because at the end of the day, that's how we're going to get through. Yes. And you can find me at Jacqueline F on Twitter, J-A-C-L-Y-N-F. On Instagram, I'm Jacqueline Fable. And you can also find all of my most current writing and upcoming speaking dates and information about how to bring me to your community and all that good stuff, as well as back episodes of this show at JacquelineFriedman.com. Friedman is F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. You can find Unscrewed wherever amazing podcasts are available to stream into your ear holes. Apple Podcasts and Acast, Stitcher, wherever. While you're in there, you know what to do. Give us five stars. Give us a little review. You will make my heart sing. I swear I read each and every one of them. Uh, And you will help other people discover this fine program. Unscrewed is produced by yours truly, Jacqueline Friedman, and edited by the fantastic Natalia Rodriguez. Our in and out music is by the Pink Tiles, and our cover art is by Nicole Dodonna and was developed in collaboration with the establishment, who also developed the sound cues. Until next week, I'm wishing you all safe and happy sex lives. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.